Good afternoon, America. This is Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer. I am honored and privileged again to fill in for the great Leslie Marshall. Leslie uh, is starting her Christmas vacation uh, or holiday vacation a little bit early, but uh, we're going to have some great guest hosts uh, coming up the rest of the week. We have some excellent um, pre-recorded, never-heard-before interviews that Leslie recorded uh, just for this week. But before any of that, we have some uh, huge news that was uh, basically had been broken over this past weekend, which I don't think uh, got the coverage that it deserved. I think, honestly, because a lot of the time with the news cycle, whatever breaks on the weekend, doesn't seem to get as much coverage as something that is done during the week. Um, And there's been a lot of talk about terrorism. Um, But something that I believe in many uh, top minds, uh, not only in politics, but, you know, out of politics and, you know, just newsmakers throughout the world believe uh, is the biggest news that's happened um, this year is that uh, this past weekend, a historic climate agreement was reached by nearly 200 countries, uh, including uh, world powers such as the United States, uh, Russia, Japan, China. Uh, India uh, in the uh, Paris this past weekend, uh, this historic climate accord, uh, which we're going to be talking about with a good friend of the show, Bob Deans of the NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council. Bob is the director of strategic engagement. You've uh, heard him on our show before. If you'd like to check out the NRDC, uh, you can follow them on Twitter at NRDC or check out their website at NRDC.org. Welcome back to the show, Bob. Thanks so much, Mark. Great to be here. Absolutely. And, um, you know, looking through the uh, the news regarding the climate accord, um, there really was, you know, I read a, a lot of good reports, actually, and, and blogs, and we had Han Chen on uh, the show from your organization leading up to uh, the conference in Paris, and there was, you know, basically some different goals that, um, you know, the NRDC was hoping would uh, come out of this conference. But uh, before we get into uh, too deep of, you know, where do we go from here, what I'd really like to do uh, f- for our audience is have an expert like yourself who, uh, to my knowledge, you were there. Is that correct? Were you in Paris, Bob? Yes, sir, I was. Okay, so what I'd like you to do is just kind of give us a first-hand experience, um, you know, from your perspective, but also um, just kind of break down, you know, as, as best you can and whatever you think is the most, um, you know, understandable terms for our audience as to what this climate uh, agreement includes, uh, not only for Americans, but for the world, um, and whatever order you feel makes the most sense. So um, why don't we start there? Go ahead, Bob. Sure. Thanks, Mark. I think, first of all, you mentioned the word historic. These, This is a historic climate agreement that was reached in Paris. You'd have to go back, I don't know, decades to find an agreement where 187 nations agreed on a course of action that's really going to impact our future. And writ large, uh, Mark, when you get past the fine print and, and the ins and outs, writ large, the nations agreed on three things. One, we've got a problem. Um, we're burning so much coal, gas, and oil right now that we're really threatening our children's future with rising seas, widening deserts, mass extinctions, and the world said, "Hey, this, we got to put a stop to this." Number two, uh, we know how to how, we know what the solution is. The solution is to move away from the dirty fossil fuels that are driving climate change and toward the cleaner, smarter energy options that can power our future without imperiling the planet. 
And number three, we agreed we're all going to do our part. 187 countries, Mark, came to Paris with their own plans for investing in efficiency, getting more power from the wind and sun, building modern transportation systems, whether it's high-speed rail or more all-electric and hybrid cars, doing what we can to cut the global carbon footprint. And so, you know, will this fix it? No. If we could have ended climate change with a piece of paper, we would have done so a long time ago. But it gives us the tools we need to get started today, to get better tomorrow, and to keep at this for as long as it takes to get it done. It's a fantastic agreement. It's going to really make a difference for our children's future. And uh, it's a great day for the world. So getting into um, some of the specifics, one of the goals that was set, and you know, a lot of people who have read regarding uh, this agreement and leading up to the agreement, a big goal was to have uh, keep the amount of temperature uh, below a rise of 2 degrees Celsius, even you know 1.5 degrees Celsius. Just give us some more information regarding what that exactly means and why that's so important, Bob, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the agreement. Sure, you bet, Mark. Well, over context, since the Industrial Revolution and mostly over the last 50 years, globe, average global temperatures have ridden, risen by about 1 degree centigrade or about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, we're seeing a lot of impacts from that, but the science tells us that to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, the real catastrophic impacts, we need to prevent total warming from going above 2 degrees. So, you know, we're halfway there. We've got to stop it from going more than another degree or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit total. But, Mark, even that much warming is going to doom coastal communities around the world. It's going to doom some of these, um, the Marshall Islands, some of these islands that are, you know, barely above sea level. And so what the uh, negotiators decided to do, and the United States was on board, European Union and others, was let's set a goal of well below 2 degrees centigrade limit on warming and sh- and try to get down to one and a half degrees, no more than one and a half degrees, which gives us about another half degree of centigrade of warming before we put a stop to this. And so that's the goal. It's a very ambitious goal. And um, the agreements that were put on the table, Mark, will not get us where we need to go. They will not get us down to the two-degree mark, but they get us started. And the idea is let's come back together again in five years, in 2020, and build on the progress we've made, come out with an even more ambitious plan going forward, and do an even better job five years from now when the technology is there, the experience is there, and the results are there to show us the way. So playing a little bit of devil's advocate, because I'm sure, you know, when you when you hear that, what, what comes into your mind knowing the American side of things is in five years, President Obama is not going to be president. How will that work out term-wise? I believe that. Would that be the last year of the next president's term? I guess it would be. I hadn't thought it through, but I guess that's right, Mark. That would be uh, actually the president would be a lame duck at that point unless they had won re-election. Now, well, to be honest, as long as it was a Democrat, I think would be okay even if they were a lame duck because my understanding is these agreements only need to be done by executive action, uh, if I'm not – executive order, excuse me, if I'm not mistaken, which we can get into momentarily. But the reason I bring that up and, you know, before we get into the American political side of it, you know, there's also been some stuff said by – you know, predictably by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans regarding this agreement. But, you know, my concern, I guess, is the fact that that it sounds like a great idea, but in five, you know, regardless of where other leaders in the world are, 
where the American president will be in five years could make a massive difference regarding whether or not we keep our end of the deal up. Um, you know, so I think that's something that voters really need to consider in addition to many other reasons that I believe we need a Democrat in office. You know, watching the Republican debate last night, the only mentions of climate change, uh, there were very few, but John Kasich, who's supposed to be the most moderate uh, Republican on stage, said that all the leaders that were meeting in Paris, instead of talking about climate change, they should have been talking about terrorism. So, I mean, that that gives you an idea of if that's the most moderate Republican, what you would be expecting from a Republican president in five years. But that's neither here nor there. We need to talk about what's in the agreement right now, because there is, you know, a lot of, um, I would say, progress. And this, you know, is historic from many perspectives. One of the other uh, things that you brought up was the way that this agreement currently um, achieves the multifaceted goals of one, um, stopping the amount of pollution that we're putting in the air through fossil fuels, and two, starting to build on clean energy. So what I'd like to do is we're going to go to break here, Bob, but when we come back, I'd like to tackle those two issues with you. So if you don't mind just holding through the break, I know we've got you until 4.50. Um, we're going to come right back with Bob Deans. And if you have a question, uh, now is a great time to call in. As you can hear by listening to uh, Bob, he's not only very uh, knowledgeable on this issue, um, he's very approachable. I've found that you know sometimes when you know not being a climate Scientologist, uh, excuse me, uh, scientist myself, you know, uh, tackling a lot of these issues and reading about a lot of these issues, they can get kind of wonky or boring or confusing. Um, whereas when you have an expert like this, don't be afraid to ask, you know, a question that you think might be, you know, too simple or a quote-unquote stupid question. There really are no stupid questions. Trust me, I'll ask plenty of them to Bob because I'm sure many of them have questions that, you know, we might be afraid to ask. But we have to. This is too important uh, of an issue to um, let things like that go by the wayside. So uh, if you'd like to ask Bob a question regarding this climate agreement, uh, in addition to ending uh, our fossil fuel uh, pollution and uh, building on clean energy, what the political climate now and in the future uh, means uh, for this future agreement that needs to be built on, uh, you know, five years from now, uh, now's a great time to call in. The number to do that is 888-6LESLIE. That's 888 888- Six five three seven five four three. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Eight 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 six Leslie. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer. I am pleased to be filling in for Leslie from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern today. If you'd like to give us a call, you're welcome to do so at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Those of you on hold, we're going to get to you in just a moment, but I wanted to give uh, Bob a chance to get into the subject we were starting to broach before the break, which is um, the two-pronged approach of ending uh, fossil fuel pollution and, well, first significantly cutting it before ending it, number one, and then number two, um, how we start to build on more clean energy production. So, um, Bob, why don't you go ahead and start with the first one? Well, I do think that's a, that's a key piece of this whole thing. In fact, it's truly really the heart of the matter when you get right down to it, Mark. I mean, uh, 
You know, John Kerry, Secretary of State, gave his major speech on this issue a couple days before the climate agreement was inked, and he said, we need nothing less than a total transformation of the global economy toward these clean energy and uh, smarter energy options and away from fossil fuels. Now, think about how historic that is. For more than a century, securing U.S. access to fossil fuels has been a central pillar of American foreign policy. Here we have our nation's top diplomat calling for a global transformation of a complete transformation of the global economy toward clean energy. Here's what he's talking about. Um, we're going to invest globally something like $50 trillion in the energy sector alone over the next 20 years. A lot of that is going to go to help Wait, get more power. $50 trillion? $50 trillion, wow. trillion. And that's going to be global investment in energy infrastructure over the next 20 years, which is not a long time. And a lot of this is going to be going toward wind turbines, solar panels, distribution and storage equipment, so we get more power from the wind and sun. Because, frankly, it has become much more economical to do that in many parts of the world, in many parts of our own country, than to invest in some of these dirty fossil fuels of the past. And here's what's happening. General Motors, uh, Apple Computers, Google, Walmart, and 150 other nameplate American corporations have pledged to cut their carbon footprint, invest in clean energy, and do other things to help reduce the global carbon footprint. Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, the Bank of America, those three banks alone have pledged to invest $325 billion in clean energy over just the coming decade. We are working with the World Bank to create global markets to help developing countries finance this transition to clean energy. I mean, this is the economic play of our lifetime, Mark. That's the and key so, part I, I was hoping you would get to, is the misnomer is that it's this, this cost with no return, whereas not only is there a return, but you're getting a far better return than the dirty fossil fuels, which you know are, are not only running out, they're not an infinite source of energy like wind or, or solar, but they're also not, you don't get as good of a return on your investment. So I think that's huge. And that's something that I find when I'm talking to people who I have trouble convincing, not only, you know, once you get them past the part of, okay, the science is there, now we need to do something about it. They go, oh, well, isn't it too expensive? And you're going to kill jobs. And, and this is why I think we need to drive home this point, Bob. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I think that's very important what you're saying. It's hugely important, Mark, and here's what's happening on the ground in our own country. You go to a state like Iowa, Iowa is now getting 30% of its electricity from wind turbines, and those wind turbines are on family farms. They're helping to keep these family farms intact. They're making sense for people. They're making money, and they're providing clean energy for Iowa. 60%, 60% of all the new electric generating capacity installed in our country so far this year has come from wind and solar. People don't realize that. That's up from 47% last year. So this is a building, growing thing. And the reason is power company executives know that in more and more parts of our country, wind and solar is just a better bet dollar for dollar than some of these older, dirtier fossil fuel approaches if you're talking about producing power for the future. And so this is what's actually happening on the ground. Texas, the oil capital of the world, Mark, now getting 10% of its electricity from wind turbines that are revitalizing a lot of towns and communities across that Texas panhandling by pumping a lot of new revenue right there where it's needed. So this is what's going on in the private sector. And what we had at, in Paris were the nations of the world 
saying as a policy, we are going to move in this direction and provide more predictability, more guidelines, more incentives to help speed this global transition away from the dirty fossil fuels of the past to the cleaner, smarter energy options of the future. Now, when we're talking about clean energy, not only with, you know, our sources of of energy, as far as you're discussing, you know, our electric grid, um, a lot of people associate, you know, our automobiles. So, you know, one of the things I was reading in some of the work that NRDC has done um, is not only improving on fuel efficiency, but also a combination with um, electric vehicles and just general smarter growth in transportation. So we only have about 90 seconds before break, so I wanted you to start that, but we'll probably have to finish it after the break. So why don't you go ahead and start that now, Bob? Well, automobiles are a huge piece of the uh, of the of the solution here because you know an internal combustion engine car, Mark. When you and I put ten gallons of gas in our internal combustion engine car, eight gallons is wasted. People don't realize it, but due to the inefficiency, you think about all the heat and friction in that internal combustion engine. That inefficiency is wasting fuel. You think about a car idling at stoplights and stop signs. Eight gallons out of every 10 we put into our tank is wasted. Only two gallons of every 10 actually moves the car forward. You take an electric car and it flips the equation. About 70% of the energy used by that automobile, electric car, is actually moving the car forward. That is the kind of quantum leap in energy efficiency that is available to us. As so you're going from what, what, efficient, what efficiency to what efficiency, did you say, pretty much? You're, almost, you're losing 8 out of 10, so what, what is that, 20, only 20% right. efficiency? You're going from a 20% efficiency to a 70% efficiency. When All right, we're going to cliffhang people with that, Bob, because we've got about 30 seconds, but I want people to let that sit in. I'm gonna, we have a hard break here, so if you're having your vehicle go from 20% efficient to 70% efficient, how is that not a good deal for America and for our auto industry? Um, if you'd like to comment on any of these issues, please do so at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We'll be back with your calls right after this quick commercial break. It's Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Leslie's executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, guest hosting for Leslie today. I'm joined by Bob Deans of the NRDC. We are talking about the historic climate agreement reached this past weekend in Paris by nearly 200 countries, including uh, the United States of America. And before we go any further, Bob, I'd like to uh, go to uh, a caller that we have who's been patiently waiting, Helen and in uh, Ithaca. Thank you for calling in, Helen, and uh, go ahead with Bob. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Um, good afternoon. You were, were, excuse me, requesting dumb questions. Hey, so, you know um, what? There are no dumb questions, I will tell you, because the only dumb questions are the one you don't, are the ones that you don't ask. All right. Well, I was calling to provide you with, I've got a couple. Fire um, away. All right. One, one is uh, the means of how we are going to enforce this. Uh, everyone has, um, the, all the, just under 200 countries, they set their own goals, and everybody agreed. But what is, you know, I know that every five years we're going to, like, check in with people. But governments change. Like, how are we, how is this going to be enforceable? Because this is, like, a real serious problem, you know, and it's the whole world, you know. It's a good question, Bob. Uh, what do you think about that? No, it's a great question, um, and I'm grateful for it. Um, the 
there's no enforcement mechanism legally. Nobody's going to jail if something if a commitment isn't met. What this is is a consensus agreement, and the the real power of it, Helen, is that nobody sat there and directed these countries as to what they should do. Each country brought its own plan in to say, here's what we're going to do, given our arc of development and the resources we're able to bring to the table. So it's a consensus approach. Number two, um, in a globally connected world, it matters. Credibility matters. And how do you get credibility? You get it by doing what you say you're going to do. And finally, the third point is, it's in these nations' own interest. It's in all of our own interest to be moving in this direction, no matter where we are. The United States, we're cutting our carbon footprint by at least 26% by 2025. And we're doing it because it's right for our people in our country. But if you look at a country like India, it's growing rapidly. They're moving a lot of people from poverty into a middle class. They've got a fast-growing economy. Their carbon footprint will continue to grow, but it's going to grow at half the rate of India's economy because India is investing heavily in solar power, in wind power. Very similar story being told in China. Its carbon footprint continues to grow for at least another decade. They've pledged to cap it, peak it by 2030, earlier if they can. But China is investing heavily in these clean energy solutions as well. So that's the idea. Okay. Can I ask the second question? Absolutely. Go ahead, Helen. All right. The second question is an offshoot of the first question, is what type of role, and and could there be a stronger role, does the United Nations, since this is a global planet problem that we're having, the United Nations have in this whole agreement process and uh, enforcement of um, you know, trying to lower our carbon you know, footprint on the planet, the United Nations. Do you have Sure, it's a great question. The United Nations actually is the host, the sponsor of this entire process that's been going on for about two decades now that has resulted finally in this agreement. And the United Nations will continue to oversee annual meetings of countries to get together and check our progress, see how we're doing, and to get back together in 2020 for five-year reassessment and to up our ambition, to up our game, to do even better, building on the progress that we've already made. And so that's very important. It's also important to note that the United Nations has put uh, fighting climate change near the center of its global development agenda. And so it, it is recognized that climate change is impoverishing people when deserts widen, when seas rise, when crops fail, when storms and droughts and wildfires uh, take away people's homes, put people on the run, that this contributes to poverty worldwide so that in fighting climate change, we're also fighting poverty. So that's why the UN has put together a very assertive sustainable development agenda centered around pushing back against the dangerous carbon pollution that's driving climate change. Well, I just learned something and have much more respect for the United Nations. Thank you for that information, sir. Absolutely. Thank you for the question. Thank you for asking the question, Helen. Uh, if anyone else would like to call in, we have uh, just a little bit over 10 minutes left with Bob, so plenty of time to get in your calls. The number is 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Now, Bob, you started to uh, allude a little bit to what uh, China and India uh, have been doing, and I think that's very important uh, for many reasons, but one of the uh, you know talking points that you hear against the United States making progress uh, 
um, was, oh, well, if, you know, what's the point of us doing anything if these two, you know, huge polluters in India and China don't do anything? And I think this takes that off the table uh, as an excuse not for the United States not to move forward, doesn't it? No question. I mean, no no country in the world has a more comprehensive plan to fight climate change than China. And just, just to mention a couple of quick things, China, by 2030, is going to be getting as much electricity from the wind and sun as we get in our entire electric system from all sources right now, Mark. That is a huge investment. They invested $90 billion in that just last year alone, more than any other country in the world. In fact, over the last five years, 40% of all the investment goes globally in wind and solar power has been in China. So that's number one. Number two, China is establishing in 2017 the world's largest market for trading carbon credits. They're actually going to create this market, which will be an incentive further to go at, to uh, invest in clean energy and go after that these dirty fuels like coal, which has uh, caused a horrendous pollution problem in China right now. And finally, you know, the China's social and economic blueprint is put together every five years. It's what they call their five-year plan. In March, China will dev- adopt the party in China will adopt its 13th five-year plan, and that includes what's called green development as one of five pillars of of the future for China. Green development is one of the top five priorities for China because they realize they have a horrendous health problem on their hands right now. Just last week in Beijing, people were told to stay inside. The air pollution was so bad. So this is very much in China's own interest. But by the way, while they're doing all this, they are sowing the seeds for generations of global economic prosperity because they are getting out there in this clean energy economy of the future. They're going to be leaders in it, and we want our workers to be leaders in that, too, here in the United States. We need to invest. We need to promote. We need to incentivize this transition so that our workers are prepared to succeed in this rapidly growing global market. It's a great point, Bob, and I'm happy you bring it up because I think, you know, also from a nationalistic standpoint, I think, you know, we want to be not as just uh, as good as China, but better. And if they're going to be creating just as much energy as we do for our entire country through, um, you know, clean energy, then I think it's we basically need to to step our game up, essentially. Um, Next, we're going to go to uh, Chad in New Mexico who wants to talk about carbon credits uh, with you, Bob. Chad, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Go ahead with Bob. Bob and Mark Grimaldi. Hi. Um, I've been listening to the discussion today, and one of the things that I've noticed in sort of the news is that there's some maneuvering going on about who's going to take the hit first on carbon credits between countries. And various countries are looking at, uh, well, if we can delay this change to cleaner energy for a while, it's going to really help our economy, and it's going to be an advantage over the people, the countries that go right into the transformation to cleaner energy. The cost is going to be different for us if we are reluctant, if we hold back. Bob, what and, do you say to that? 
Well, you know, what we actually saw, Chad, looks like there is a actually a global competition emerging among which nation or nations are going to be best positioned to take advantage of this clean energy revolution. And one of the greatest indicators we saw of that was this. California had a large delegation over there under Governor Jerry Brown. Uh, Tom Steyer was there. These guys were being treated like rock stars. They were actually holding bilateral meetings with Israel and other nations that are looking to California and saying, wow, how do we do what you guys have done? And while we were over in Paris, as you know, uh, the United States, Germany, Japan, and 17 other countries that account for about 80% of the research and development in clean energy pledged to double their research and development in this area over the next five years. And here's what's important. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, the University of California, and a couple dozen other major investors pulled together a fund, announced they fund that they call Mission Innovation that's going to help take those ideas from the R&D labs into the marketplace. Now, you know, raise our hands if we want to bet against those guys. I mean, these are people who have a pretty good track record for taking new ideas and monetizing them. So I think that's the way it goes. I think dragging our feet risks losing the letting other countries steal a march on us in the economic play of our lifetime. Thank you for the question, uh, Chad. Great answer, Bob. I think it kind of rings true uh, as far as wanting to take advantage of that, especially when those players are involved. Next, we're going to go to uh, Mark in California. Mark, uh, you're on with Bob Deans of the NRDC. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, um, I haven't heard much about it, but as far as any re- talk of reduction in methane from factory farming and animal feedlots, um, et cetera, to reduce the methane. Uh, Bob, what uh, what do you think about that? No, it's a great point, Mark. Methane is a greenhouse gas that is vastly more powerful than CO2 than carbon, and so the methane that's coming out of agriculture development is a problem. It needs to be dealt with. Animal feedlots are a huge source of the problem. Another source of the problem are these uh, gas wells when we're, we're fracking. Uh, these gas wells leak a lot of natural gas, which is actually methane, into the atmosphere. And so we're trying to get uh, safeguards in place. The Obama administration is moving to reduce these methane leaks. It's important that we do so, and it's important that we work on, on methane in our agriculture as well. Thank you uh, for the call, Mark. Next, we go to Chris in New Mexico who wants to, well, you know what? I'll let him uh, give his point. I don't want to take away from your, uh, take the wind out of your sails here. Chris, go ahead. You're on with Bob Deans of the NRDC. Yeah, hi, Bob. Um, Hey, Chris. I was just wondering, do you know of any uh, projects or here in the United States where companies have taken the reins and started to manufacture wind turbines and uh, solar panels and so on uh, here here in the states or is it all being shipped out i think that right now we are making uh, solar panels and wind turbines here in this country um, i wouldn't have the latest stats on it for you a lot of the a lot of the solar panels worldwide and in this country are coming from china because they have worked so hard to make this a priority strategically for them. But I can tell you this, we've got 250,000 Americans working every single day to help us get more power from the wind and sun. That's huge, and it's growing. And by the way, that's three times as many people
was we have mining coal in this country. Coal mining has been losing workers uh, mostly because of mechanization in the industry. But a lot of people don't realize that for every coal miner we have, and those are important jobs, they're supporting our families, but for every person who's mining coal, we have three people helping us get more power from the wind and sun. Those are the jobs of the future. That's where we need to be headed. Chris, thank you very much for your call. And uh, next we're going to go to Paul, also uh, in New Mexico, who wants to talk about uh, the implications of this deal on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which is a good angle I actually hadn't thought of. Uh, So, Paul, go ahead with your question. Hey, Bob, Mark. Great conversation. Yeah, my concern is, um, you know, earlier you were saying about Zuckerberg and all those guys not wanting to drag their feet. But in this country, we have politicians that drag their knuckles. I mean, we have knuckle draggers, and they've, they've created this beast called the TPP, which I think is no more than another idea of, like, hey, let's go pollute and pillage somewhere else because China's fed up with us. Great. Uh, so great. what I'm getting at, if I, I'm sorry, if I could just further that, and then the tribunals where we can be penalized for uh, impinging on the future profits of other companies, I mean, the house, in other words, I think we're binding our hands somehow to be as innovative as the Chinese will be. Bob, what do you think? First, I love the uh, line about uh, dra- not dragging feet, but dragging Wasn't that great? Great. I'm he nailed that. that one from you. Um, I think a couple of things. Number one, as far back as the North American Free Trade Agreement, and certainly with the World Trade Organization, the environmental community has worked very hard to put environmental safeguards as part baked into those agreements so that we don't go backwards in this country. And the last thing we want from the GPP or anything else, Paul, is to face a tribunal that says to us, you can't protect your air, your water, your wildlife, or your lands because that's antithetical to this free trade agreement. We're not going to stand for it. We have worked very hard to advocate that position here in Washington with the trade negotiators. We've been told that the final agreement is going to address these concerns, but will it be perfect? It won't be. Will we be able to support it? Let's wait and see. But uh, that's a very important point. And I, I think the political piece that you bring up echoes something that Mark raised earlier about the 2016 elections, which is that we do have a uh, Senate Majority Leader from the coal state of Kentucky going out there saying this great global climate agreement can be shredded in 13 months, his words. Boy, if ever you were asking yourself if a party is out of step with science, out of step with the hardships already being imposed on our people by climate change, out of step with the economic opportunity of a lifetime, and now, after 187 countries have agreed to move forward, out of step with the entire world, that's where we are. And we hope that both candidates for the presidency next year will recognize this is a serious problem, there is a solution, and we need to be about moving forward with it. Bob, very well put. We have just about a minute left, so uh, I just wanted to let you have the final word here, uh, whatever you'd like to leave our audience with. I just leave the audience with hope. We came out of Paris with global momentum for moving away from the dangerous fossil fuels that are driving climate change, investing in cleaner, smarter energy options so we can protect our children from the central environmental challenge of our time. That's what we're going to do. 187 countries agreed to do their part to move us forward, and that's where we're headed. It's a time of hope. It's a season of hope. And this is an agreement that brings hope to all of us. And I thank you for the 
for the time today, Mark. Bob, the pleasure has been all mine. Uh, you always do an excellent job. If you'd like to uh, find more of uh, Bob and the NRDC's work, you can go to nrdc.org, or if you're uh, a Twitter uh, person, go uh, follow them on Twitter at NRDC. I encourage all of you to please share what you learned from Bob today and from the show uh, with your family members You know, at your dinner table over the holidays because um, this is not getting enough attention. It is a huge agreement, and like Bob said, it's just the start of things. Now is when we need to start the conversation and explain why this is so important so we can pressure our leaders to make sure that they support this uh, agreement going forward and uh, so that we can grow our economy uh, in the way that Bob explained. Uh, again, that was Bob Deans, Director of Strategic Engagement for the Natural Resources Defense Council.